When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. April 6th, 1807. Dear Sir, the late inquiry into the charges versus Colonel Burr has excited a very great deal of sensibility in this part of the country and will probably have the same effect in all parts of the United States. The real friends of the administration are universally anxious for a full and fair judicial investigation into his conduct and rely with great confidence on the executive taking all measures necessary for effecting that object. The new, as well, the old opposers of the administration are anxious to smother the investigation and have already suggested doubts respecting the measures heretofore pursued in relation to Burr and intimate that the executive was not possessed of evidence to justify those measures, or if they are, that they had been extremely delinquent in not producing it at the examination. It is even said the General Wilkinson will not be ordered to attend the trial, etc., etc. I hope and trust that this is not the fact, because I am confident that such an omission would implicate the character of the administration more than they can be appraised of. Indeed, I do not see under such circumstances on what ground the administration be justified by its real friends, the necessity of Wilkinson's presence with the army would not be received as an apology by any party in this part of the country. Besides, I think Wilkinson's own character will be seriously affected by his absence, and of course it would be unjust to him, probably too, measures contemplated in relation to his late military proceedings would receive a considerable impression from that circumstance. These considerations, I am confident, cannot receive too much of your attention. I am confident they will be dearly appreciated by you. In making this communication, I am influenced solely by my unabated attachment to the principles of your administration. Be pleased, sir, to accept assurances, my highest consideration, and affectionate personal attachment. William Branch Giles. As evidenced by this letter from Senator William Branch Giles of Virginia to the President of the United States from the same state, it was clear that, as the trial of Aaron Burr was gearing up in Richmond, the trial would not just be a legal adjudication of Burr's actions, but rather would prove to be a trial in the court of public opinion of various individuals involved, including, but not limited to, Thomas Jefferson himself, as well as his administration and the party that rallied under his banner. It is with that thought that we begin this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Chris Fernandez-Packham of the Age of Victoria podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. As with this podcast, in Age of Victoria, Chris takes his listeners through a chronological tour of the world during the reign of Queen Victoria of the United Kingdom. Like this podcast, 
Chris works to shine a light on the lesser-known individuals, events, and movements of what has been dubbed the Victorian era in order to make more approachable an era of change. Once you're done with this episode, check out Age of Victoria by going to the website at ageofvictoriapodcast.com or search for Age of Victoria anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Before we dive into the narrative, I feel that I should do some level setting here. Honestly, I could devote multiple episodes to discussing the ins and outs of the Burr trial in 1807. As I've said in previous episodes, the entirety of the Burr conspiracy could be a podcast, or there could be a podcast devoted to examining Aaron Burr's life. There is more than enough material there to keep a podcaster going for a good long while. However, I would be doing you a disservice if, coming to a podcast devoted to exploring presidential history, I went too into the weeds with the trial, the conspiracy, or Aaron Burr. My coverage of the Burr trial will be with the lens of the Jefferson presidency always in mind. While I may go into details beyond just what was happening back in Washington during the trial, I cannot cover all of the ins and outs of what was happening in Richmond in that spring and summer of 1807. Two books that have provided a wealth of information about the trial to date have been James E. Lewis Jr.'s The Burr Conspiracy, Uncovering the Story of an Early American Crisis, and David O. Stewart's American Emperor, Aaron Burr's Challenge to Jefferson's America. I'm also pulling in Joseph Whelan's Jefferson's Vendetta, The Pursuit of Aaron Burr and the Judiciary for this episode. As always, a bibliography will be on the source notes page for this episode, and I encourage you to do more reading on this and any topic that we cover. With that said, let us begin. When last we left Aaron Burr in episode 3.34, he was being brought to Richmond, Virginia for trial. As David Stewart describes, quote, With Burr's arrest, the story of his expedition moved from frontiers and forests to the nation's center stage. Under the bright light of public scrutiny, the contest now would be over the consequences of Burr's expedition and how it would be labeled for history. Indeed, even in the present day, this would be a very unique, once-in-a-lifetime experience, a former vice president being brought up on formal charges for a conspiracy that had national and international implications. Thus, you can imagine that the Jefferson administration was delving into unknown waters and devising an approach to this situation. It didn't help that the president had been facing political pressure in Washington prior to Burr's arrest. Jefferson had issued his proclamation warning of the plot on November 27, 1806, and naturally, it had attracted Congress's attention. Both because it was still a developing situation and there was a delay in getting information from the West, the information that the administration was providing did not satisfy Congress that, as Stewart described, quote, clamored to know exactly what was happening and what Jefferson proposed to do about it. Thus, our old friend, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, rose on January 16, 1807, to assert that, quote, Jefferson's failure to take a manly and decisive attitude towards Spain had encouraged Burr's venture at the head of an unprincipled banditti. After making his speech, he introduced a resolution which was approved with wide support, quote, demanding that the president disclose all information about the conspiracy against the Union or to invade a foreign nation. This resolution forced Jefferson's hand, and thus, he sent a special message to Congress on January 22nd. Jefferson was forced to admit that, quote, The mass of what I have received in the course of these transactions is voluminous, but little 
has been given under the sanction of an oath so as to constitute formal and legal evidence. It is chiefly in the form of letters, often containing such a mixture of rumors, conjectures, and suspicions, as renders it difficult to sift out the real facts and unadvisable to hazard more than general outlines, strengthened by concurrent information or the particular credibility of the relator. So, Jefferson was admitting that the hard evidence wasn't there in terms of legally admissible evidence. That, however, did not stop him from continuing in his message to pronounce, quote, In this state of the evidence, delivered sometimes, too, under the restriction of private confidence, neither safety nor justice will permit the exposing names except that of the principal actor whose guilt is placed beyond question. Let's take a sidebar here, dear listener. Before Burr was even in custody, much less before a court of law, the President of the United States was already saying that his, quote, guilt is placed beyond question. This is a big, big, big problem in terms of ensuring that Burr would have a fair trial if the President of the United States, the most public person in America at a time that there were very few national public figures, was already saying that he was guilty after admitting that the evidence that he had thus far was shaky. Still, the administration would proceed with its case, and the legal counsel for both the prosecution and defense readied themselves down in Richmond. As described by historian James E. Lewis Jr. in his book on the Burr Conspiracy, quote, By the time that Aaron Burr and his captors arrived in late March 1807, Richmond had become the most important city in the nation's most powerful state. One early 19th century traveler described its location as much the finest site in Virginia. Another called it a beautiful place with an impressive view across the falls. Most of the main players in the trial could be found in the city and indeed all lived close to one another. In addition to District Attorney George Hay, who was already on the ground, Jefferson directed his new Attorney General, Caesar Rodney, to travel to Richmond to join Hay in preparing the case against Burr. The defendant, meanwhile, turned some high-profile Richmond residents to serve as his legal counsel. The disgraced former Secretary of State Edmund Randolph, John Wickham, and Benjamin Botts were Virginian lawyers retained by Burr. And just in case you thought John Randolph of Roanoke would only have a political role to play in this narrative, think again, because he ended up as the foreman of the grand jury. To round out the dramatis personae of the initial proceedings in Richmond, Chief Justice John Marshall would serve as the judge. This was truly a notable assemblage of characters for such an unprecedented trial. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Prosecuting Burr was not the only thing on the administration's plate in the first few months of 1807, however. Personally, Jefferson had been dealing with a bit of drama around his son-in-law, Representative Thomas Mann Randolph of Virginia. As stated in earlier episodes, Randolph, as well as the husband of Jefferson's late daughter Maria, Representative John Wales Epps of Virginia, stayed at the President's house when Congress was in session, both to give Jefferson some familial company, as well as to save them from the expense of a boarding house. 
Such was again the case when Congress came back in session in late 1806. However, in early 1807, Jefferson noticed, quote, that there was a difference between Randolph and Epps. As Randolph biographer William Gaines speculated, quote, Jefferson attempted always to treat them alike and to avoid any show of favoritism, but Epps's very active life in Congress may have subtly influenced the president's attitude toward the two men. Contention also arose from the redistribution of Jefferson's property necessitated by Maria's death, and the two sons-in-law were at odds over Epps's share of Poplar Forest. At any rate, Tom was certain that Jefferson felt a preference for Epps, and when his brother-in-law was invited to join a party at the president's in which he was not included, he felt confirmed in his suspicion that he was being overlooked. Thus, in February 1807, without any warning given to Jefferson, Randolph moved out of the president's house and into the Frost and Quinn boarding house on Capitol Hill, where a number of Federalist members of Congress resided. His new lodgings caused tongues to wag that Randolph may be jumping ship and turning to the Federalist cause, but it seems that there is no truth to the rumor, and indeed, within a week, Randolph joined his father-in-law for dinner at the president's house. Quick side note, do you remember my mentioning in episode 3.34 a young lawyer in Kentucky named Henry Clay that you should look out for? Well, when Randolph moved into the boarding house, one of his fellow boarders was Clay, the new senator from Kentucky. Don't worry. We'll be seeing more of him soon enough. Back to Randolph, though. His time in the boarding house did not last long as, in late February, Randolph fell ill with a persistent fever. Initially, Randolph resisted Jefferson's efforts to get him back to the president's house for rest and treatment. But finally, a week after Congress adjourned on March 3rd, Tom Randolph moved back in with his father-in-law, who provided Tom's wife Martha with updates on his recovery. By the time Randolph began to recover, Jefferson then fell ill with first a cold, then, quote, one of his periodic headaches, which Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone speculated was likely due to stress. Beyond Burr and Randolph, the president had received news from a trusted associate that also distressed him. As mentioned last episode, U.S. Minister to Britain James Monroe and Special Envoy William Pinckney had negotiated a treaty with the British government, which had been signed on New Year's Eve. Due to the delay in communication across the Atlantic, it wasn't until the day of Congress's adjournment on the 3rd that Jefferson first learned from British Minister to the U.S. David Erskine that the treaty had been concluded, and it was still nearly two weeks later, on March 15th, that a copy of the treaty actually arrived along with Monroe and Pinckney's explanation as to the terms that they had negotiated. To say that Jefferson was disappointed in the treaty is an understatement. Even before the treaty arrived, the president was inclined to reject it, as the information provided by Erskine had told him that what he considered the most important matter in Anglo-American relations, the issue of impressment, was not addressed by the agreement. As briefly touched on last episode, from the British perspective, they were the wronged party, and impressment was their way to even the score. As noted by Spencer Tucker and Frank Reuter, As the demand for American shipping increased when the French Revolutionary Wars began in 1793 and belligerent nations had an increased demand for imported supplies, U.S. shipping merchants soon realized that they did not have enough experienced sailors to meet the need. Thus, they turned to foreign-born sailors. With rising wages being offered by the American merchant marine over the next decade, the number of non-American sailors employed by American shipping increased substantially. As the conflict between Britain and France dragged on, though, the British Navy needed every hand it could get, 
and it wasn't hard to tell where many of their skilled seamen were going. Thus, the Royal Navy began searching U.S. merchant ships. For some unfortunate American sailors, it wasn't as easy to prove one's nationality at the time, and thus, they would end up impressed into serving on British ships, though it was also the case that some captains did not really care about making the distinction and just wanted to meet the needs of their ship for hands on deck. The two governments involved fell into a cycle, with the Jefferson administration complaining about impressment and the British government complaining about U.S. shipping as well as the American Navy recruiting British sailors. Further, as the conflict continued to drag on and the British became increasingly desperate as Napoleon amped up the pressure, as noted by Tucker and Reuter, quote, such a war trapped neutrals, for the old gentleman's rules for conduct of warfare and diplomacy were thrown out. Each side harnessed its national resources and tolerated no interference with the national effort. More often than not, the rights of individuals and of neutrals were ignored. Neither Jefferson nor Madison was equipped to develop proper policies to confront the dynamics of this changing world. Perhaps no American was. Thus, where the administration back in Washington saw a resolution to the impressment issue as make or break for any negotiated agreement with Great Britain, Monroe and Pinckney in London had realized that it was not going to be on the table unless other issues were addressed first, and the British government gained confidence in the U.S. as a valuable and trusted partner rather than, quote, as a nervy little neutral, too weak to promote its foreign policy or defend its natural claims. To Jefferson's credit, though of course the official response and new instructions to Monroe and Pinckney would have to be routed through Secretary of State Madison, he picked up his pen on March 21st and wrote to his longtime friend Monroe personally to explain that the treaty had put him in a difficult place. As he described to his protege, quote, I perceive uncommon efforts and with uncommon wickedness are making by the federal papers to produce mischief between myself personally and our negotiators and also to irritate the British government by putting a thousand speeches into my mouth not one word of which I ever uttered. The blame, however, was not solely on Federalist newspapers. Quote, Depend on it, my dear sir, that it will be considered as a hard treaty when it is known. The British commissioners appear to have screwed every article as far as it would bear, to have taken everything and yielded nothing. Jefferson went out of his way to avoid blaming Monroe and instead turned his attention to opening up the door for him, quote, to follow your desire of coming home as soon as you see that the amendment of the treaty is desperate. The power of continuing the negotiations will pass over to Mr. Pinckney, who, by procrastinations, can let it die away and give us time, the most precious of all things to us. The government of New Orleans is still without such a head as I wish. This comes across as a case of Jefferson trying to placate a friend who he just needed to get out of the way after failing in an assigned task, or at least Monroe would certainly see it that way. We'll have to learn more about Monroe's reaction to Jefferson's rejection of the negotiated treaty in a future episode. For now, we have to remain on the eastern seaboard as things there were getting quite interesting as 1807 went on. As the Napoleonic Wars dragged on, an increasing number of British and French frigates were appearing on the U.S. coast, particularly around the Hampton Roads area. Even in 1806, newspapers in Virginia were warning that, quote, 
our coast, it is probable, will be the scene of a great naval enterprise. The danger of a confrontation increased greatly with the arrival in July 1806 of a new British vice admiral to take command of the North American station based out of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Admiral George Berkeley was described by Tucker and Reuter as, quote, a man of rather mediocre ability who owed his North American command to family connections. Upon his arrival, Berkeley starts to receive reports from the captains under his command of British sailors deserting in U.S. ports and signing up to serve on U.S. naval vessels. Indeed, there was one ship being prepared to set sail in early 1807 that the Admiral began to focus his attention on. We made the acquaintance of Commodore Samuel Barron in episode 3.28 when he took over command of the Mediterranean Squadron from Commodore Edward Prable in 1804. Samuel, however, was not the only baron in service in the U.S. Navy. His younger brother James had risen to the rank of captain, and in late April 1806, James Barron received orders from Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith to, quote, hold yourself in readiness to go to the Mediterranean in the frigate Chesapeake for the purpose of taking the command of the American squadron in that quarter. Though, as ordered, Barron made preparations to take up the command that his brother had previously held, Word soon came that Congress would not provide the needed authorization to allow Barron to put together a crew, and work to get the USS Chesapeake ready to sail was halted. It took until the new year, but in January 1807, James Barron was again commanded to ready the Chesapeake to travel to the Mediterranean. Tucker and Reuter described James Barron as follows, quote, While regarded as skillful in his profession, Barron also seems to have been reflective, introspective, and without the burning desire for glory that motivated so many of his fellow officers. Certainly, he had prominent enemies in the service, some of whom questioned his courage. Directly under him on the Chesapeake, Barron would have Charles Gordon acting as his flag captain. Now, this distinction will be important in understanding some of what is coming. In terms of responsibilities by rank, a Commodore is put in command of an entire squadron, not just one ship while the flag captain is the captain responsible for the flagship of the squadron. Though Barron outranked Gordon, they both still had a level of responsibility for the ship, though Gordon would be expected to take primary responsibility for the condition of the Chesapeake once he assumed command. Thus, Barron took the initial lead on getting the Chesapeake ready at the Washington Navy Yard, where it had been since being mothballed in June 1803. But the Commodore, after a couple of months, traveled to Norfolk, Virginia, to attend to matters there in preparation for departure. Meanwhile, after Gordon formally assumed command of the Chesapeake on May 1, 1807, it became Gordon's responsibility to finish getting the ship ready to sail. On the day Gordon assumed command, Commodore Barron wrote to him that he, quote, by no means advised your leaving the Navy Yard with any unfinished work and depend on Norfolk. You will experience more difficulty and trouble there than you can conceive. Naturally, of course, on the morning of May 9th, Captain Gordon ordered the Chesapeake to set sail for Norfolk, though work on it had yet to be completed. The journey down the river was a difficult one, with the seamen actually falling overboard and drowning on the way. Meanwhile, more crew members were being recruited in Norfolk, and the recruiter, as was often the case, was not too picky about the nationality of those whom he was signing up. Thus, the crew of the USS Chesapeake would include deserters from the HMS Melampus and other British vessels, 
and Admiral Berkeley in Halifax would receive word along those lines. At first, Berkeley requested instructions from the British Admiralty about how he should proceed in the matter and wrote to a fellow officer around the same time that, quote, the conduct of the Americans on the subject of deserters must come to a crisis between the two countries soon. He would help matters along when he issued new orders on June 1st. Before we get to that, though, let's shift back to Richmond and check on the progress of the Burr trial. In the initial hearing of the U.S. Federal Court in Richmond, Chief Justice Marshall ruled that, though there was not evidence of Burr committing a treasonous act, there was enough evidence to, quote, charge Burr with organizing a military expedition against a friendly nation. Marshall set the next session of the court to resume proceedings in late May and informed the government that they, quote, could also present a case for treason then. Burr was then released on bail. As the Chief Justice had in the case that the Supreme Court had heard against Burr's fellow conspirators, Eric Bowman and Samuel Swartwout, in February, during which the court had ordered their release, quote, Marshall distinguished between a conspiracy to commit treason and the overt act itself. Jefferson, however, saw the Chief Justice's decision, quote, as partisan obstruction and wrote to Senator William Branch Giles, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, that, quote, the nation will judge both the offender and the judges for themselves. Jefferson expressed his support for a constitutional amendment which would make the judicial branch of government more answerable to the people and asserted that, quote, if their protection of Burr produces this amendment, it will do more good than his condemnation would have done. Due to his young son falling ill, Attorney General Rodney had to withdraw from direct involvement in the case and trust the prosecution to District Attorney Hay. However, the president was not willing to trust a sole agent in Richmond with the case, especially as Hay had just recently suffered the loss of his wife. As noted by historian Gene Edward Smith, quote, After Rodney withdrew from the case, Jefferson assumed control of the prosecution. He devoted several cabinet meetings to the matter, and instructed Madison to find additional funds to bring witnesses from great distances. On the eve of the trial, he forwarded to Hay a sheaf of blank pardons he had signed. Hay was instructed to fill them out at discretion if he should find a defect of evidence and believe that this would supply it. This was a carte blanche for the prosecuting attorney to grant presidential pardons in order to secure testimony against Burr. Naturally, this level of involvement of a president in a legal prosecution is considered untoward and improper, and it's certainly not what I would consider one of Jefferson's finest moments as president. The trial resumed on May 22nd, and Marshall was joined by U.S. District Judge Cyrus Griffin in presiding over the trial as the grand jury was impaneled. On May 25th, District Attorney Hay reintroduced his motion that Burr be held for treason. After a few days of arguments, Marshall empowered the grand jury to decide on Hay's motion. As they deliberated, Hay brought in more legal help for the prosecution. Virginia Lieutenant Governor Alexander McRae described as, quote, a sarcastic, hard-bidden Republican, always effective before a jury, and William Wirt, noted as, quote, a rising star of the Richmond Bar. Likewise, Burr secured a new legal counsel for his team, former Maryland Attorney General Luther Martin, who, quote, donated his formidable talents free of charge. As Jefferson continued to send Hay instructions on how to pursue the case, Martin's arrival brought with it a new approach for the defense. On June 9th, 
Burr and his attorneys noted in proceedings that they were, quote, seeking certain documents in the administration's possession that the defense asserted were important to their case. Burr said that if Hay would provide the documents, a court order would not be necessary. Hay, having no instructions on either providing these documents or challenging the authority of the court to issue a subpoena for administration documents, quote, told Marshall that he was not satisfied that the court had the authority to subpoena the president, whereupon the chief justice asked for oral argument on the matter. Martin went after Jefferson himself, questioning, quote, Would this president of the United States, who has raised all this absurd clamor, pretend to keep back the papers which are wanted for this trial, where life itself is at stake? Can it be presumed that the president would be sorry to have Colonel Burr's innocence proved? One can only imagine Jefferson's reaction. In his response to Hay, the president suggested that Martin may have been a party to Burr's conspiracy and questioned whether he too, quote, should be indicted as an accomplice with Burr. This would put down this unprincipled and impudent federal bulldog and add another proof that the most clamorous of Burr's defenders are all his accomplices. For his official response, though, Jefferson was a bit more measured. On June 13th, the district attorney informed the court that the president had agreed to send a letter from General James Wilkinson that the defense had requested, quote, but with instructions to Hay to exercise Jefferson's right to discretion by withholding the communication of any parts of the letter which are not directly material for the purposes of justice. For the other documents requested from the Army and the Navy, Jefferson would order them to comply, quote, but the defense must specify which orders it wished to see. This concession did not stop Chief Justice Marshall from announcing that he was ready to rule on the question of whether the court had the authority to subpoena a president. Marshall decided that the chief executive of the United States could, in fact, be subpoenaed and, quote, could not withhold any documents on the ground that they might contain state secrets. That was for the court to decide. After they were handed over. In his ruling, Marshall asserted that, quote, any person charged with a crime in the courts of the United States has a right to compel the attendance of his witnesses. With that, subpoenas were sent to President Jefferson, Secretary of War Henry Dearborn, and Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith. Before we go any further with the trial, though, we need to shift back to that order from British Admiral Berkeley on June 1st. An excerpt of the order reads as follows, quote, Whereas many seamen, subjects of his Britannic Majesty, and serving in his ships and vessels as per margin, while at anchor in the Chesapeake, deserted and entered on board the United States frigate called the Chesapeake, and openly paraded the streets of Norfolk in sight of their officers under the American flag, protected by the magistrates of the town, and the recruiting officer belonging to the above-mentioned American frigate, the captains and commander of His Majesty's ships and vessels under my command, are therefore hereby required and directed in case of meeting with the American frigate the Chesapeake at sea and without the limits of the United States to show to the captain of her this order and to require to search his ship for the deserters from the before-mentioned ships. And if a similar demand should be made by the American, 
He is to be permitted to search for any deserters from their service, according to the customs and usage of civilized nations in terms of peace and amity with each other. Berkeley had this order sent down to the Royal Navy Squadron in Chesapeake Bay at the time on his flagship, the HMS Leopard, commanded by Captain Salisbury Price Humphreys. If that ship's name sounds familiar to those of you who have studied the history of the Jefferson presidency previously, then you probably know what's coming. While the Royal Navy to this point had by and large avoided searching U.S. naval vessels out of respect, there had, in fact, been other ships of the U.S. Navy boarded by the British in the past. Without getting into too much detail on each of these incidents, the USS Baltimore had been boarded in November 1798, USS Ganges in January 1799, and most recently, U.S. Navy gunboat number six in June 1805. These incidents, it should be noted, occurred well beyond U.S. waters and had not been deemed significant enough of a challenge to national authority to elicit much more than an official diplomatic protest. What happened on June 22, 1807, however, would be quite different. As described by Tucker and Reuter, quote, both Commodore Barron and Captain Gordon were clearly more concerned with getting to sea than training their crew. Their decision to sail with a ship unprepared for action was not an unusual approach. However, it contrasted sharply with the style of Captain Edward Prable, who had his ships ready for battle at any time. Indeed, Barron had only been aboard the Chesapeake twice in the two and a half weeks between its arrival in Norfolk and when it set sail. Regardless, at 7.15 a.m. on June 22nd, the USS Chesapeake, quote, weighed anchor and made sail, bound for the Atlantic and Gibraltar. To be fair, it should be noted that Navy Secretary Smith had expressed a, quote, anxiousness that the Chesapeake reach her Mediterranean station as soon as possible, as the USS Constitution had been in service in that squadron for a good number of years and was long due relief. On their way out to sea, the Chesapeake passed a couple of British vessels. Though they did see the action, little did they know that one of the ships, the HMS Bologna, had sent up a signal to the Leopard about the Chesapeake's movements. The Chesapeake cleared Cape Henry to the open water around 2 p.m. As the Commodore, Captain, and a couple of others dined in the Captain's cabin, they saw the Leopard, quote, through the open ports several miles to the south. The crew continued in their duties as the Leopard drew ever closer. Quote, At 327, Captain Humphreys of the Leopard hailed the Chesapeake, saying that he had a dispatch for her captain. Again, this was nothing unusual as mail was often sent on whatever ship was headed across the Atlantic next. Commodore Barron gave Humphreys permission to send a man aboard the Chesapeake. Despite regulations calling for such, quote, on the approach of a warship of another power, Barron did not call his crew to quarters. It should be noted that this was a practice often not adhered to, especially when encountering a ship from a technically friendly nation just a few miles off the coast of Virginia. British Lieutenant John Meade arrived on board the Chesapeake at 339 and requested a private meeting with Barron, which Gordon joined. When they were alone in Barron's cabin, Meade handed Barron a note from his captain, along with the order from Berkeley. Again, from Tucker and Reuter, quote, Barron must have been shocked by what he read. He politely but firmly refused to recognize Royal Navy authority over his ship and pointed out that the U.S. government did not permit such searches. 
He also brought up the technicality that of the British ships that Berkeley's order listed as having deserters aboard the Chesapeake, he did not know of any of his crew who had come from those ships. He was aware of some of the crew having served previously on the HMS Melampus, but that was not one of the ships listed. Way to try to get off on a technicality, Baron. After consulting with some of his folks, Commodore Barron wrote a reply to Humphreys, asserting that, quote, I know of no such men as you describe. The officers that were on the recruiting service for this ship were particularly instructed by the government, through me, not to enter any deserters from His Britannic Majesty's ships, nor do I know of any being here. I'm also instructed never to permit the crew of any ship that I command to be mustered by any other but her own officers. It is my disposition to preserve harmony, and I hope this answer to your dispatch will prove satisfactory. During the half hour or three quarters of an hour that Meade was on board, neither Barron nor Gordon did anything to ready the crew for action. Naturally, Barron's answer did not prove satisfactory, and Barron guessed as much. He, quote, ordered Gordon to call the crew to general quarters, but as quietly as possible and without the traditional drum roll. You can imagine Barron's surprise then when he heard the ship's, quote, drummer beating to quarters. Gordon was apparently surprised too and, quote, halted this by hitting the drummer with the side of his sword. From Tucker and Reuter, quote, all gun deck lieutenants and Gordon subsequently testified that halting the drumming delayed the process of readying the guns to fire because it threw the crew into confusion. It is indeed doubtful Baron gained any advantage by the silent call to quarters. The vessels were so close that the British could easily see the Americans belatedly clearing for action. Captain Humphreys hailed again and stressed his duty to follow his orders, and Baron ordered Gordon to expedite preparations on the ship. Though he was reluctant to do so and admitted as such in his official report, Humphreys at 4.30 ordered the crew of the Leopard to open fire on the USS Chesapeake. As described by Tucker and Reuter, quote, the ships lay nearly abeam as the Leopard's side erupted in smoke and flame. Shot crashed into the Chesapeake, principally amidships. Wooden splinters flew in all directions. Among the wounded was Baron, hit in the right leg and thigh by splinters. As the Chesapeake's crew continued to struggle to prepare a return fire, Commodore Barron hailed the British ship twice and offered to, quote, send a boat. But just then, a second broadside thundered from the British ship. Amidst the fire, Barron ordered that a boat be lowered while, quote, he went from the gangway to the main hatch three or four times to hail the gun deck, asking whether the men there were ready to return fire. They were not ready. Captain Gordon went down to survey the situation, then received, quote, a desperate message from Barron. For God's sake, to fire one gun for the honor of the flag, I mean to strike. After an attempt to fire a forward gun failed, the gun crew, quote, finally fired off one of the primed 18-pounders by means of a burning coal from the galley stove at the other end of the deck. Immediately after, though, Baron sent an order down to the gun deck, quote, Stop firing, stop firing. We have struck. We have struck. Namely, the order had been given to lower the flag to indicate surrender. Before the Commodore's pendant and the flag could be brought down, however, the leopard fired once more. In the course of around 15 minutes, 
three seamen aboard the Chesapeake had been killed, while eight were severely wounded, and ten, including the Commodore, had received minor injuries. One man wounded would later die of his injuries. The final humiliation, however, was still to follow. At 5 p.m., British officers and sailors came aboard the Chesapeake and, quote, demanded that Captain Gordon produce the books of the American frigate and muster his crew. Gordon announced that he was no longer an officer of the ship and withdrew to his cabin, and Sailing Master Brooke mustered his crew. The British officers identified four men as deserters, and at 7.30, they returned to the Leopard with their prisoners. Barron then sent a boat with a message to Captain Humphreys, which read as follows, quote, Sir, I consider the frigate Chesapeake as your prize, and am ready to deliver her to any officer authorized to receive her. At 8 p.m., the message came back from Humphreys, declining the surrender order, and instead offered, quote, every assistance in my power to the Chesapeake. With that, the Leopard made set sail, and the next day, the USS Chesapeake passed Cape Henry once more at 8 a.m. to anchor in Hampton Roads just after noon. Let's take a moment to reflect on the reality of this, dear listener. A foreign vessel demanded to board a U.S. naval ship and potentially take some of its crew. When the commanding officer refused, the ship was fired upon and, as it was unprepared to defend itself, surrendered and allowed another nation complete control of the situation. Yeah, this was not going to go well for anyone involved in a position of authority. On the British side, Admiral Berkeley had, in an action not sanctioned by his government, ordered those under his command to commit an act of war. On the American side, the fact that the British ran roughshod over the intended flagship of a naval squadron was humiliating. We'll talk more about the fallout from the Chesapeake Leopard affair in our next episode, but I thought it important to note that, while the administration was prosecuting a great domestic threat to national security, it was also dealing with the greatest foreign relations challenge to date in the Jefferson presidency. In addition to those threats, there was also a public relations aspect to the Burr trial, which we need to discuss. Indeed, as noted by James Lewis in his extensive study of the conspiracy, for contemporaries at the time, the legal arguments weren't nearly as interesting as the impact of the revelations about certain characters and what that meant for all involved. From Lewis, quote, For contemporaries, the most significant aspects of Burr's trial were those that revealed, counterposed, and confirmed or destroyed characters. Though just a witness in the proceedings, William Eden was one who came out of the trial with his reputation in tatters due to the intense questioning from the defense attorneys, which not only sought, as Eden later said, quote, to invalidate my testimony, but also brought to light, quote, an old arrest in Georgia and a court-martial. Again from Lewis, quote, while the characters of witnesses and attorneys received careful attention, the characters that were most clearly on trial in Richmond were Burrs, Wilkinsons, and Marshalls, as the three crucial components of the trial, accused, accuser, and adjudicator. Naturally, with Burr on trial, his reputation was at stake. But let's turn to that second of the trio for a moment, for the survival or destruction of Wilkinson's reputation would have serious implications for the Jefferson administration. As noted in the opening quote, 
There were questions as to whether General Wilkinson would indeed appear at the trial, though he had been called as a witness. We've gone through the back and forth of Wilkinson's allegiances throughout the course of this podcast, and we left him last episode ostensibly as the protector of New Orleans. But in reality, he was more of a de facto dictator in early 1807. Rightfully so, Wilkinson was receiving criticism as news of his actions in New Orleans leaked out. But as noted by Wilkinson biographer Andrew Linkletter, quote, Jefferson showed himself ready to support whatever Wilkinson did, regardless of the cost to the principles of individual liberty and the rule of law. This was an odd ideological turn for Jefferson, the champion of liberty for so many years, who had protested the heavy-handedness of his predecessor and the Alien and Sedition Acts. Jefferson even went so far as to assure Wilkinson personally that, quote, you will be cordially supported in the line of your duties. In this, though, I think one can see the strain of the constant threat of internal and external threats that Jefferson had been faced with for the majority of his second term. It also reflects the difference between criticizing from the outside and making decisions from the inside. Once it was Jefferson who was responsible for the security and stability of the nation, his idealism met its limits, and the ends did at times justify the means, at least from Jefferson's viewpoint. For Wilkinson, though, there was only so long that he could cloak himself in the shroud of national security. Once news came to New Orleans at the end of March that Burr had been arrested, as described by Linkletter, quote, the mood in the city changed abruptly. The general relaxed his grip, armed patrols ceased, the seamen were released, and normal commercial life began to return. With the president's support assured, Wilkinson departed from New Orleans on April 20th, bound for Washington. Again from Linkletter, quote, By the time James Wilkinson reached Washington, his enemies were waiting for him in force. Chief among them was Aaron Burr. The former vice president and his fellow conspirators were none too pleased that Wilkinson's change of heart had not only decimated their plans, but led all of them to be judged both in actual courtrooms and in the court of public opinion. If they were going down, they were determined to take Wilkinson down with them. As the grand jury considered whether the treason charge should be brought back up against Spur, Wilkinson arrived in the courtroom in Richmond on June 15th to deliver testimony. One of the people in attendance watching the proceedings, a Federalist from New York you may have heard of named Washington Irving, described Wilkinson's entrance as follows. Quote, Wilkinson strutted into court and took the stand in a parallel line with Burr on his right hand. Here he stood for a moment, swelling like a turkey cock, embracing himself for the encounter of Burr's eye. The latter did not take any notice of him until the judge directed the clerk to swear General Wilkinson. At the mention of the name, Burr turned his head, looked him full in the face with one of his piercing regards, swept his eye over his whole person from head to foot, as if to scan its dimensions, and then coolly resumed his former position and went on versing with his counsel as tranquilly as ever. The whole look was over in an instant, but it was an admirable one. There was no appearance of study or constraint in it, no affectation of disdain or defiance, a slight expressing of contempt 
played over his countenance. Wilkinson wrote afterwards to Jefferson of the experience from his perspective, where he noted Burr as, quote, this lion-hearted, eagle-eyed hero, jerking under the weight of conscious guilt, with haggard eyes in an effort to meet the indignant salutation of outraged honor. But it was in vain. His audacity failed him. He averted his face, grew pale, and affected passion to conceal his perturbation. I imagine the true scene is somewhere in the middle, and an awkward one for both men. As noted by Lewis, quote, Wilkinson's role unexpectedly oscillated between accuser and accused. To the administration and its allies, Wilkinson was the crucial witness. However, Wilkinson seemed vulnerable on two questions. Why would Burr have seen him as a willing accomplice in treason? And why had he acted with so little regard for civil authority in New Orleans? Over the course of the trial, Wilkinson's actions and attitudes in court and around town tended to alienate rather than endear. This was a problem for the Jefferson administration, as this trial attracted more attention the longer it went on. Again from Lewis, quote, The trial temporarily transformed the city of Richmond. It brought hundreds of people to Richmond as attorneys, witnesses, and curious onlookers. Wilkinson's performance in this trial was undermining confidence in the senior-ranking officer of the U.S. Army at a time that there was a threat of war with Great Britain. The longer this went on, the worse it was getting for the administration. Chief Justice John Marshall, though, was not willing to let the turmoil and tribulation of the trial continue ad infinitum. Marshall had been concerned about the treason charge from the beginning. As described by Marshall biographer Gene Edward Smith, quote, Marshall said the most important problem in the trial pertained to the issue of constructive treason. How far is this doctrine to be carried in the United States? If a body of men assemble for a treasonable purpose, does this implicate all of those who are concerned in the conspiracy, whether acquainted with the assemblage or not? The Chief Justice realized the precedents that would be set by this trial. As described by Smith, quote, Burr's trial convened on August 3rd. To accommodate the throng of spectators who had flocked to Richmond, the court met in the commodious chamber of the Virginia House of Delegates. But even that room was insufficient to seat the curious crowds eager to see the arch-traitor brought to justice. Though it would take just over two weeks to settle on the jury, finally, on August 17th, quote, the jury was impaneled in the morning and the main part of the trial could begin. The prosecution called witness after witness, but again from Smith, quote, none was able to establish that an act of levying war against the United States had taken place on Blennerhassett's Island. Finally, on Thursday, August 20th, Burr and his attorneys objected to the continued introduction of collateral testimony before the prosecution established that an overt act of treason had occurred. Marshall tried to maintain a balance, a middle ground between the positions of the defense and the prosecution through the court proceedings. But ultimately, with Marshall's go-ahead, the defense made an official motion to suspend any further testimony as it was tangential and unrelated to proving the charge. On the afternoon of Saturday, August 29th, when the arguments from both sides on the defense's motion wrapped up, the Chief Justice, quote, announced that the court would adjourn until Monday, 
at which time he would render a decision on the defense's motion to suspend further testimony. After ensuring that Judge Griffin was agreed, Marshall began writing his opinion Saturday evening. He continued all day Sunday, worked late into the night, and was up well before dawn Monday morning to add the final touches. When he finished, Marshall had written 25,000 words, the longest decision of his career. The court convened at 9 a.m., and it took until nearly 2 p.m. before Marshall finally arrived at his ruling. Before he did so, he pointedly made sure to note that, quote, that this court dares not usurp power is most true. That this court dares not shrink from its duty is not less true. No man is desirous of placing himself in a disagreeable situation. No man is desirous of becoming the peculiar subject of calumny. No man might he let the bitter cup pass from him without self-reproach would drain it to the bottom. But if he has no choice in the case, if there is no alternative presented to him but a dereliction of duty or the opprobrium of those who are denominated the world, he merits the contempt as well as the indignation of his country who can hesitate which to embrace. With that said, he issued his ruling. Quote, No testimony relative to the conduct or declarations of the prisoner elsewhere and subsequent to the transactions on Blennerhassett's Island can be admitted because such testimony, being in its nature merely corroborative and incompetent to prove the overt act itself, is irrelevant until there be proof of the overt act by two witnesses. Basically, as the government's case rested on what happened at Blennerhassett's Island, which, as a part of Virginia, was why the trial was being held in Richmond, the onus on the prosecution was to prove that Burr had been directly involved in treason at Blennerhassett's Island. While everything had gone down on the island in the Ohio River, though, Burr had been hundreds of miles away. With his ruling, Marshall had effectively ended the Burr trial. All that was left was for the pro forma turned to the jury, who under those parameters, as prescribed by Marshall, had no other option but to acquit. As noted by Lewis, quote, Many people, including Marshall himself, explained his decisions with reverence to his character. Federalist and Burr sympathizers would characterize him as, quote, acting with pure uprightness and integrity. Then, of course, there was President Jefferson and his supporters. Joseph Whelan, in his examination of the trial and ruling, expresses Jefferson's situation at the time of Burr's acquittal as follows, quote, he, Jefferson, had declared a national emergency and state militias had been placed on alert. He had pronounced Burr's guilt beyond question and had then supervised the unprecedented dragnet for witnesses and evidence. Throughout the Richmond proceedings, President Jefferson had been in nearly daily contact with Hay, and it had all come to nothing. As discussed in episode 3.33, even the year prior, When presented with intelligence and reports of Burr's machinations, the president and his cabinet had understood the importance of developing a solid legal case against Burr. In late October 1806, the administration had opted against hasty action, 
but in the 10 months since, its hand had been forced by government agents on the ground in the West. Despite all their best efforts, the administration had lost in the court of law against Burr. Jefferson wrote to District Attorney George Hay on September 4th that, quote, this criminal, i.e. Burr, is preserved to become the rallying point of all the disaffected and the worthless of the U.S. and to be the pivot on which all the intrigues and the conspiracies which foreign governments may wish to disturb us with are to return. Neither President Jefferson nor anyone else at the time could have known that Burr, the phoenix who had risen from the ashes so many other times in his career, had fallen out of power and influence for the final time. As Lewis wrote, quote, of those whose reputations suffered from either the exposure or the repression of the conspiracy, Burr not only faced the greatest censure, but also lived the longest under it. In the nearly three decades between the Richmond trial and his death, Burr did little to defend or restore his reputation. His acquittal of treason and misdemeanor could not shake the broadly held opinion that he was guilty of treasonous intent, at least. Naturally, Burr being Burr, he didn't completely give up his ideas of filibustering expeditions in Spanish America, but his confidence seemed to be broken, as he would have periods where he would succumb, quote, to despair. In June 1808, he left the U.S. for Europe. As Lewis noted, quote, Burr sought not only to distance himself from a hostile press and public, but also to find foreign backing for the kind of military adventure that could restore his reputation, wealth, and influence. It was not to be. Burr would eventually return to the United States, but the remainder of his life was only a shell of what it had been. In particular, the loss of his daughter Theodosia in the winter of 1812-1813 as the ship she was traveling on to reunite with her father disappeared somewhere off the coast of the Carolinas was a major blow to the former vice president. Still, as noted by Burr biographer Milton Lomas, quote, Burr kept going. Outwardly, he remained as calm, as collected as ever, perhaps a little more so. Only occasionally, in some of his personal communications, did the inner turmoil surface. In the mid-1830s, Burr worked with a colleague in publishing his memoirs, but again from Lewis, quote, The responses to the memoirs suggest that there is little chance of changing the public's views of either Burr or the conspiracy in the mid-1830s. As described by Lomas, quote, In a pleasant second-floor room overlooking the harbor of New York in the Bay of Newark, Aaron Burr died on 14th September, 1836. It was his wish to rest alongside the graves of his father and grandfather in the president's plot of the college burial ground at Princeton, New Jersey. Our longtime listeners know that we have been talking about Aaron Burr for a long time in this podcast. His first mention came in episode 1.9. How do we sum up the ignominious career of this well-known figure in American history who is made even more famous by a musical that came out a few years back? Aaron Burr has been made out to be one of the greatest villains in American history. But I would argue that there are others who would be more deserving of that title. Still, Burr's career reflected an opportunism that has come to be seen as the defining characteristic of the most pessimistic stereotypes of politicians. 
Burr's career in retrospect will always be marked by three major milestones that came within less than a decade of one another. The election of 1800, the duel with Alexander Hamilton, and the conspiracy and trial. As noted by Lewis about the latter, quote, When the trial ended in late October 1807, the story of the Burr conspiracy seemed less, not more, coherent than it had six months earlier when the trial began. Likewise, Burr himself remains an enigma that is deserving of more attention. If you're an aspiring history podcaster who may have had their interest piqued by my coverage of Burr over the years, please feel free to reach out to me, as I would be more than glad to provide whatever support I could to get a podcast series on Aaron Burr going. For now, though, as the rest of his tale falls outside of the scope of this podcast, we must bid Burr adieu and turn back to the ramifications of the trial for the Jefferson administration, and in particular, the embattled president. When Jefferson sent his seventh annual message to Congress on October 27, 1807, he had spent months deliberating how to respond to the Chesapeake Leopard Affair, as we shall discuss in more detail in our next episode. Though the majority of the language was dedicated to the crisis in Anglo-American relations and other foreign relations matters, he did write two paragraphs to sum up the Burr conspiracy and trial. I thought that it would be best to read these two paragraphs in their entirety so that we can consider his words and the president's position at that point. He wrote as follows, I informed Congress at their last session of the enterprises against the public peace, which were believed to be in preparation by Aaron Burr and his associates, of the measures taken to defeat them and to bring the offenders to justice. Their enterprises were happily defeated by the patriotic exertions of the militia whenever called into action, by the fidelity of the army and energy of the commander-in-chief in promptly arranging the difficulties presenting themselves on the Sabine, repairing to meet those arising on the Mississippi and dissipating before their explosion plots engendering there. I shall think it my duty to lay before you the proceedings and the evidence publicly exhibited on the arraignment of the principal offenders before the Circuit Court of Virginia. You will be enabled to judge whether the defect was in the testimony, in the law, or in the administration of the law. And wherever it shall be found, the legislature alone can apply or originate the remedy. The framers of our Constitution certainly suppose they had guarded as well their government against destruction by treason as their citizens against oppression under pretense of it. And if these ends are not attained, it is of importance to inquire by what means more effectual they may be secured. The president had clearly in his mind found where the defect lay, and that was in the administration of the law by John Marshall. As noted by Lewis, quote, Jefferson had long hoped that radical change in the judicial branch would result from a battle with it over Burr. Marshall's impeachment would certainly have been a radical change and was ardently desired by some Republicans that fall. But Jefferson viewed the impeachment process as a farce that would not be tried again. He had throughout his presidency been an advocate for reforms in the judicial branch, that last bastion of Federalist authority in the federal government. And though, as we discussed last episode, Jefferson had been able to appoint three new justices to the Supreme Court, it was clear 
that Marshall's authority was solidifying ever more while Jefferson's influence was waning. In October 1807, Jefferson was two and a half years into his second term, and it was no secret that the president did not intend to break the precedent set by George Washington to seek a third term. The upcoming year would see an election to choose Jefferson's successor, something that the president had to focus his attention on, along with the foreign relations mess that Jefferson was dealing with at that point. Thus, there was little time or political will to make a push for what Jefferson saw as needed reform in the federal judiciary. Marshall would be free to continue to build his influence in shaping the nation, while Jefferson was forced to start thinking about his exit. There was still much for the president to do, though, as we shall learn more about next time. Until then, special thanks to Chris for providing the intro quote for this episode, and be sure to check out the Age of Victoria podcast once you get done listening to this episode. Thanks so much as well to Alex Van Rose for his audio editing work on this episode. If you're looking for an editor for your podcast or audio project, the link to Alex's page on Fiverr can be found in the Source Notes page for this episode. Likewise, you can also go to the website to find out more about the itinerant band who graciously allowed us to use clips from their rendition of Jefferson and Liberty as the intro and outro music for this series. Thanks so much to them. The website can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you'd like to reach out to me, I can be contacted via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on social media. I'm available on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Special thanks to all of our patrons Matthew, Michelle, Jeremy, Ike, Joshua, Kara, Eric, Michael, Howard, and Scott. Our patrons help to provide financial support for podcast hosting fees, as well as getting access to the research sources that help me to do the deep dive into presidential history for which this podcast is known. They are the folks that help to keep this podcast free for all of you. If you'd like to join them in providing financial support, just go to patreon.com slash presidencies. Financial support is not the only support that has been crucial to keeping this podcast going, though. Thanks so much to all of you who have left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any other platform that has that capability. Thanks to everyone who has shared information about presidencies on social media, or even in passing to that history fanatic in your life. This podcast has grown over the years through word of mouth, and I can't thank all of you enough who have been those champions for this labor of love. Finally, thank you so much for listening. As I begin research on the Madison presidency, I'm finding so many tidbits that I can't wait to share with all of you. Between now and then, though, we still have four more episodes of the Jefferson series, according to my latest estimate. I hope you'll join me back here for all of those, as well as all that lies ahead on this journey through presidential history. Until then, Stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.